If you can't get enough of the Mixing Music Podcast and want three times the amount of episodes every week, subscribe to our exclusive content for only $4 a month or $40 a year at mixingmusicpodcast.com backslash exclusive. Happy mixing, my friends, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the Mixing Music Podcast. I'm your host DK and with me as always is my lovely co-host, Lo-Lo-Lo-Lo-Fi Lu. You know, I was thinking about like doing a melody from uh, the YouTube channel, but I can't actually think in lo-fi. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and with me, if you're watching, if you're watching on YouTube... Um, or Twitch, because we are live streaming right now. Then with me, we have special guests, my youngest son, Kyo. Everybody say hi. Hi, say hi, Kyo. What's up, say Kyo? hi. He's just sitting on my lap, hanging out um, on this episode here. But today we're talking about uh, vocals. The topic is vocal hacks, how to get great sounding vocals. We know lots and lots of people request about more vocal tips. I think that's the most popular topic for DMs is how to get better vocals. How do I compress vocals? How do I EQ vocals? How do I just make them sound not like crap? Um, and we're going to talk about few the few secret tips. Well, it's not secret at all. None of these are secret. But Especially just some, not after this release. Yeah. And then uh, we're going to talk to you about some ways to get better sounding vocals, specifically more professional sounding vocals um, with your music. And the number one thing that we're going to talk about here is in the production or even pre-production. Um, we're not talking about getting vocal lessons. We're talking about practicing the song that you're going to record and making sure that you're in the proper mindset to record the vocalist. If you're the vocalist yourself, get into the right mindset um, to record at your best performance. Or if you're the recording engineer, make sure that you you are helping the artists get in the zone, help them warm up, give them tea, whatever they can to engage and bring out the best performance from them that they possibly can um lou you've been in some sessions where the opposite has happened we've all been in some sessions Mm -hmm. where the opposite has happened great artists great singers that all of a sudden came to the studio and they just were not feeling it yeah absolutely can you fix that in post no that's kind of the sad part if you're really looking to get like something good you kind of have to record with the notion that you know you want them to feel the energy i talk about this all the time when it comes to mixing especially for our intern staff whenever we're like teaching like how to properly record somebody or how properly to mix a song and a lot of times i talk about the idea that the delivery of the performance is more important than like whatever plugin you use or whatever hardware you have in front of you even if you have a cheap mic a good performance can make a bigger difference than the equipment ever will but Sometimes you have an artist that's just not feeling it that day. And unfortunately, you know, that's going to translate in the takes. And that's where a lot of times you have this amazing beat. You have the mix is sounding crispy and everything, but the artist just can't seem to get behind the mix. And sometimes it's strictly because of the performance. It's not necessarily that the mix wasn't good. It's just that they can also hear that it's just not hitting the way it should. And they're hoping that the mix might be able to fix this, but this is typically not the case. The performance is everything. And emotionally speaking, if you're not in the mood, it's definitely going to be recorded. That mood is recorded. That's why sometimes it's hard to recreate the vibe and get new takes another day. There's a there's an idea like with drum recording someone in the past has said to me 
um, like we can, you can hit the drum as hard as you can. But if you ask me in the mix to make a sound calm, I can't. Like there's no EQ yeah. or compression move that can make the drum less exciting or the opposite. If you hit if you hit the drum real softly, I can bring the volume up, but it won't sound energetic. Exactly. And it really comes down to the performer uh, because you can have, just in that same notion, you can have 10 different drummers play the same bar, right, or same eight bars, 10 different drummers, all of them playing as best as they can to be exactly the same as each other, but you would still pick up a vibe difference between each person. But that same person can also play it 10 days in a row, a different recording, one recording every day, and those 10 recordings would be different. So this is uh, part of the reason why we have so many episodes um, where, like, not episodes, sorry, albums or songs where, like, the live performances of these bands, groups, or artists is just significantly better than the studio production. Kiss being a good example of that. So it's part of the reason is, I mean, obviously the production in the studio is different. The reverb of the stadium is slightly different, obviously. But a lot of it is, I would say, a lot of it could be avoided by just making sure that you're in the right energy. So if you scream on stage, but then you don't scream in the studio, it's not going to translate well. So just make sure whatever you do, even if you need to, like this would be a good idea. Like if you need an audience to watch you to get hyped, then bring in a small studio audience to just come and watch you dirt, like during your studio session. Like, I don't know. Snarky puppy would be a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, They have a live audience in the same room that they're recording. Yeah, so whatever it takes to kind of get into that zone, if you have an issue of uh, having it sound like the live version, make sure, again, just get in the right mindset. That's the most important thing. Performance does go a long way. Um, even the singer, if you are if you need to hire a random singer to, you know, sing whatever's already been written, which is yeah. some of the case, you need to hire a professional studio singer, just make sure you take the time that you hire someone. The reason why they're experienced is... Like there's someone that is good and then there's someone that's studio good. Yeah. Studio good is is very different. A lot more speed based where like a studio trumpet player not only can probably improvise on the spot, but they can they're very dynamic in front of a microphone. They know how to play with the microphone. Um, they know how to do takes as far as the timing of everything. They can kind of follow along with the uh, with headphones on. Um and uh even a good trumpet player in the studio is able to sight read everything perfectly. So it's it's a different skill, a different expertise. So make sure that you find someone that does have experience in the studio specifically and that you know has a good portfolio that works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, uh, we're going to continue moving on to step number two. Surprisingly, like I want, I don't really want to talk about microphone choice, but as much as like acoustic treatment, I know it's the one thing that nobody likes to talk about, but it's the one thing that is so extremely important that we should. Yeah. Why do you think, Lou, that's acoustic treatment? What? No, no, not tell me why, Lou. Tell the audience why acoustic treatment is significantly more important than microphone choice. Because no matter what microphone you have, if your room sounds like shit, unfortunately, you're going to hear it in the microphone. And that's kind of a big deal. It's a bigger deal than most people ever make it out to be. Uh, For instance, I see, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars go to equipment and then, you know, maybe a few hundred bucks, maybe a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars here go to acoustic treatment in a room. 
And the sad part is, like, if you don't actually know what's happening in your room, let's say for monitoring sake, then you don't really know what you're recording half the time. If your room has huge room nodes and it sounds kind of wonky, then, yeah, even what you hear through the mic, you may not know what you're actually hearing. But let's talk about recording. If you're going to record, you don't have the biggest space available and your microphone, let's say, is by a wall and that wall doesn't have treatment. Let's say you just have posters up, right? Reflective surfaces then yeah, you're going to get some of that early reflection from the wall along with the actual reflections of the room. And depending on how you record, let's say that you've invested a lot of money into your equipment. Let's say you're using compression. All you're doing is bringing up all that reverb noise floor from the room up in your mix. And it's virtually impossible to take it out. There are things that you can look up like the, the Saturn trick that I do. If you look at my YouTube and all that, that helps on like transient based stuff, but sustained information like vocals is extremely hard to deverb. And there's plugins out there that help with it, but they don't really do that great of a job because in order to do more, you have to start losing quality of the actual audio that was recorded. So acoustic treatment in the room matters significantly more than the mic, because if the room sounds like shit, no matter how good or bad your mic is, the room is going to get picked up in it. And the better the mic is, Unfortunately, the more detail you're going to pick up that's going on in the room. So if you have ACs blowing a refrigerator, um, if you have the speakers going, whatever it is, that microphone is going to pick it up. Acoustic treatment at the very least is going to make your recording sound not only a little bit tighter, but you're going to be able to process it better when you use compression, limiting, all that kind of stuff. Little artifacts that you maybe didn't hear at first won't be brought up. Now, as far as acoustic treatment goes, there's been a phrase that I've heard, not just online, but also in schools. Um, I've heard people say deader is better, but that's actually not the case at all. Yeah. Um, that is actually incorrect. I would like to improve that phase by deader meaning like acoustically dead, like there's no reflections in the room. I want to improve that phrase and say dead is safe, but live, good live is better. Yeah. So um, I would say that if you're in a very small boxy room, then make sure to try to do as much acoustic treatment as possible. Um, and, and the cool thing is you don't have to totally kill a room to do it. You yeah. don't have to totally kill a room to get good vocals at, for like at home or whatever. Or if you're trying to build a co commercial studio, you don't really need like a floating floor type situation where you spend thousands and tens of thousands of dollars for a vocal booth or whatever. Have you ever seen the setup I built for Keisha at her house? Yeah, in her closet, like under uh, her stairs or whatever? No, not that one. Uh, the new Malibu one. It's literally just like a couple panels behind her. It's something. literally just three panels in a room and that's it. And it's just uh, floor standing panels, four foot by six foot by six inches deep. Used Roxel Safe and Sound from Home Depot. Uh, maybe cost a total of 600 bucks to build it. And um, Ron Fair went with Keisha to, uh, I think it's called Jungle Studios in Atlanta. I forget what it's called. It's a massive studio. It's like $3,000 a day to go there. And he still uh, messaged me. He's like, hey, just to let you know, like the recordings you sent me, I don't know where you recorded them from, but uh, they were better, if not equal to the ones we got here. And that was in a small bedroom, you know, just three panels in a bedroom, just knowing how to set them up in a nice little pocket so that you're capturing what you need to capture. So that that is definitely one of the secrets of great recording vocals and that will generally that will that will make an effect of how professional it is. I feel like with especially with like pop mixes, productions, um it's important with pop music it's important to be uh commercially viable. 
So, for example, with like an indie rock song, yeah. good does not mean clean, does not mean really well produced. Good could be whatever, right? But in like anything that's pop music or you're trying to get like on the radio or stuff like that, then there's a difference between a song that sounds like the label spent a million dollars on it versus someone that sounds like they recorded it in their bedroom. And all of these tips, the point of these, by the way, is to help you get that million dollar record sound without spending a million dollars. And, and again, number one is the performance. You just need to get that right. Yeah. And oftentimes, yeah, and that's free. Yeah. That just takes experience. And, and it does take a lot of experience. Like do not underestimate how much experience it does take to do that. Watch the videos of your favorite producer. They are always on the talk back telling the artist, like, I need more. I need more. I need the performance. I need the take. They're never saying anything about the mic. They're like, oh, you know, we need to swap the mic or else this isn't the take. They're, they never say that. They're always like, hey, I need you to feel it. I need you to do this. Like, it's always communicated that they need the performance. Number two, again, is acoustic treatment. Again, acoustic treatment is is a, the most significantly the fastest way for normal people to realize, oh, this is not a well-done recording or this is not that million-dollar record that we're talking about. Yeah. Number three I want to talk about is editing. So we're yeah. not even going to talk about microphone preamps. You'll notice that the equipment almost has nothing to do with making it sound like a million dollars. And if you notice, that's kind of like the theme of Mixing Music Podcast. The equipment is usually not the issue. Yeah, it's really not the issue. And this, the problem with buying equipment is that you're focusing away from the real problem. Now, I do this a lot. I get a lot of vocals from various different scenarios. I work with a few labels um, that send me vocals of various different types. Sometimes they're just like sync. So it's like composers with some top line or sometimes it's like the artist. Like that's the artist trying to prove something. Oftentimes it's just like background music or like there are no vocals, whatever, right? So the most important part is that there's a big, there's a big quality difference between vocalists or engineers that spend the time editing the vocals afterwards. Now, even if you have Beyonce in the studio with that much experience and vocal prowess is still needs editing to have a million dollar sounding record. Now I want to be very clear about this. It is, if you do not edit vocals, it does not mean that you're less, if you edit vocals, it does not mean you're less artistic. It does mean, however, if you do not edit vocals, you're you're lazy. That's all it is. It's just an effort thing for mm-hmm. pe- for people to cut out. Well, most of most breaths you shouldn't cut out. That's that's very unnatural to cut out breaths. But like every anything like any where you don't redo takes that need to be redone. If you don't realign timing or pitch wise takes like the the performance was the best on this one but it was just slightly flat like if you don't readjust the pitch correction on that there's it's just small bits of editing that go into it it yeah. takes for an engineer or producer it takes a very uh a very articulate no not articulate what's the word i want to use a very experienced ear to do this someone that is specifically good at recognizing and producing vocals to do this but editing honestly speaking if you are an artist that are just sending raw vocals without spending any time editing no comping not redoing sections that you weren't the best you weren't feeling the best about this is all just serious laziness and everybody and their dog can tell that you didn't try thus it's never going to be that million dollar record yeah i don't care if it's a hit song if it sounds like shit you sound like shit but here's the thing 
the reason why Kanye was able to well we don't really want to necessarily talk about him but the reason why Kanye was able to do so well with Donda or Donda which was um mostly done on his phone was because even the microphone doesn't matter what mattered was yeah. the phone recordings had the best performance yeah and then they spent the sh- the most amount of time editing those to make it not sound like it was recorded on a phone yep so um make sure you take the time to edit lou what other what other things about editing can you say so a lot of it usually surrounds like vocal tuning because uh I kind of showed this through the masterclass that I had recently. And in the masterclass, we went over like, okay, we can always align the doubles. We can always make sure that they're good using things like vocal line. Which Dude, is, I hate vocal line. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I know lots of people line, love it. I hate vocal line. But for line. one reason, most people use it wrong. Most people use it to be almost exact doubles. Fuck that. There needs to be error in music. But uh, you can always dial how you want to do it. You know, you can always do phrase for phrase or whatever you want to do. But... um Honestly speaking, when it comes to vocal tuning, you'd be surprised how much that matters in the context of mixing versus production. When it comes to mixing, it's a lot easier to actually get the vocals to sound way more in pocket in the song if they're properly tuned. If one vocal is out of key, it actually makes it sound a lot less professional. And it's not to say that, oh, the better the vocal, the better the song. No, it's just if you could tuck the vocal in and it's perfectly in key, then usually it's a nice tucking. It's smooth and you can kind of dial it in. But when a note is bad, somehow you want to just tuck it lower and lower, but now you really want more of that backing vocal. So now you're trying to get it up, but you're not trying to show that that note is off. So now you're trying to lower it down. It's usually this battle of like, okay, how much bad can we allow to continue to exist in this mix? And so tuning the vocal quickly makes it to where you can bring more things to light without showing any kind of like flaws in the process. So this is really interesting. So these first three points have nothing to do with mixing. And we're going to get into the mixing side of how to make vocals sound great in just a moment here. But these are important. In fact, if these first three aren't done at least like partially good, then the mixing really won't matter. It'll be harder to mix. Um, because we need vocals. Well-recorded vocals are much more malleable, meaning that if the vocals are recorded well, then I could do more EQ moves and it'll add less, it feels like it'll add less distortion. It'll feel like less brittle. It'll be a lot more malleable. There's no resonating frequencies. This, which is partially, you know, a good mic will have less resonance, less distortion. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, but number one, again, performance is key. Number mm-hmm. two is acoustics. Number three is editing. I Even then, I would even go as far as, like, we were talking about uh, pitch correction, which I think is yeah. huge. Yeah. Um, get yourself auto-tuned specifically. Go to mixingmusicpodcast.com slash auto-tune for the best discount that we can give you. Plus, we get a little commission anytime someone signs up for that. So, um, But you need to get auto-tuned. It sounds different from Waves. Waves, uh, vocal, whatever the vocal tuning is, it sounds different from the crisp tuner or whatever. Um, use what tools you have available to you, but if you can afford it, if you can swing it, auto tune does have a specific sound and it's really flexible. It's really good. And, um, using that in a slow setting, a slow setting with high humanize, don't use flex tune. Um, if you do that, then you can actually make it sound more, more natural than melodyne. 
Melodyne can make things sound really unnatural, so just be very careful. It depends on how you use it as well. But for people that don't have a lot of extensive experience on Melodyne, you're going to get a much more natural sound easier out of out of auto tune. So yeah, uh, don't don't bag on auto tune. And that's the thing too. Like again, comping or just doing retakes. Like that's just an effort thing. Like you need to continue to do better takes, better takes if. If the artist is not performing well, if the singer, if you as the singer is not doing well, take another day, whatever. But you can't just be like, oh, like I just got to send it off. Like, no, vocals are super duper important and and it's commonly known to be the most important part of the song. So let's let's take the time and effort. And then again, this is not a skill based thing. This is just an effort based. Number three is just effort based. All right. So when it comes to mixing vocals, um, I want to talk a little bit about compression now compression is very needed the reason why we use compression for vocals is because vocals are incredibly dynamic yeah. even just now i said incredibly dynamic right where the, the it started soft and then it got really loud we need compression there is compression on my voice right now for this podcast which kind of normalizes the volume the the amplitude of my vocals so that means that every word that I say is kind of a little bit more is a little bit more stable as far as volume goes. So no words go missing and that loose voice is not way louder than my voice in some sections that oh, when we laugh quieter. it doesn't blow your ears. When we whisper away from the microphone it's unnoticeable hopefully. So things like that. Compression is extremely practical and extremely useful for vocals. Oftentimes we get a lot of people that are afraid to compress more, um, mm-hmm. that don't use the attack, uh, the correct or the best attack and release setting for that vocal that they're recording. Or oftentimes um, don't, are afraid to commit and compression. I don't know. Oftentimes people over compress as well. Yeah, honestly, uh, one of the recent questions that I got was... Uh from one of our staff members, uh, they were recording with uh, Kaden Corbett, and uh, you know he's like, "I'm I'm used to working with like a lot of like rappers or you know like hip hop types that aren't very dynamic in their vocals." And Kaden sings quietly from one moment, and then he's really loud the next, and like then we end up over compressing. You know, I asked a couple other people what to do, and they were saying like recorded on separate takes, this and that. Uh, I was like. You know, you could also record quieter, set your threshold a little bit higher to catch those peaks. And, you know, you can always use makeup gain to kind of bring yourself back up a little bit. But, you know, these things are very important because uh, sometimes uh, the issue that I find with the multi-take thing is taking somebody out of the vibe or the pocket of the performance. And I'm sure we've worked with some of the same people where vibe is everything if you tell them like hey you can't sing a loud part yet like hold off until the next take you know it's like what do you mean what do you mean that's that doesn't feel right you know so learning how to set compression in a way that is in the recording stage non-destructive but rather helpful is actually a huge thing one of the ways you can do that like i said just now was uh, lower your input And set the compressor to a higher threshold. That way, if they are that loud, let's say they belt that loud, then you don't want to overcompress and that's one of the fears, then that's going to save you. That's really going to save you. Also, you can use, uh, let's say you're in the plugin domain, uh, plugins like R-Comp, the Distressor emulations are good for like you know, heavier compression without sounding too bad. Um, Variable Muse are my personal favorite for this kind of stuff. 
Um, but honestly speaking, like if you're scared of compression, my honest, honest recommendation is stop. Like compression is your friend, not food. Yeah, uh, stop being yeah. afraid of compression. Yeah, it's 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 self destructive to avoid compression in the recording stage because it's a really practical tool. Yeah, it's really useful. The higher you go up in the food chain or, or whatever the predator chain, I don't know what it's called anymore. I don't really care about this uh, status chain or thing or whatever. But point is, if you want to work with, let's say, Ariana Grande, you swear like you're going to tell her how to take her takes. She can record herself and she does it all the time for her major releases. Um, and she has compression on the way in, too. You know, if she can handle it um, as, you know, a vocalist recording herself from home, I'm sure you as a professional should be able to handle it, too. The When the day or the opportunity comes up that you get to record with her. But you're not about to tell her to separate her takes if she doesn't have to. So yeah, so number four is vocal compression. Make sure that you compress the vocals in a way that works best for the vocals. And that means don't overcompress. And that means allow for more compression if needs be. Um, also, attack and release settings. Some sometimes if the attack is too slow, you can kind of tell by the waveform too, yeah. but we won't we won't get into that. Don't look and decide by by your eyes. But just make sure that the attack is fast enough to catch. Um, the beginning of vocals. And by the way, if you compress vocals way too much, like if you're hitting large numbers, even double digit numbers of gain reduction, that's probably too much. And you're probably squeezing yeah. it a bit much. Um, one way that you can do less compression, but kind of conserve volume as well is that I sometimes, uh, depending on which preamp it is, if it's like a stepped kind, it doesn't work as well. Um, but if it's just infinitely variable, like a pot, then what I'll do is I'll, turn it down during the loud section so the gain actually is lowered into the compression so it doesn't mm -hmm. compress as much and then I bring it back up in the quiet sections again. So I kind of like in person with an outboard preamp will actually automate the gain there Yeah. so it compresses less and that sounds a lot more natural than just letting it squeeze. Yeah, if you have something like a 1073 what you can do being that those are stepped is they have an output knob. You can do that with the output knob. You can leave... Uh, for instance, like a lot of people don't like the 1073s, I guess, aggressive saturated mids. And so what they'll do is they'll leave it low and then they'll use a compressor's makeup gain to boost up the signal. So like a classic example of this would be uh, the 1073 with the tube tech uh, compressor at the end. The tube tech, I'll be honest, guys, it was designed to be clean. I know it's tubed. I know it has kind of a sound, but it's meant to be clean. So the trick for that one, if that's your scenario, let's say you're tracking in a studio and you don't personally love the 1073, you don't think it fits as well in this record, you could just leave it lower and then boost the makeup gain. Because on the tube tech, the makeup gain is actually pretty damn clean. It's not noisy or anything, or at least, you know, a clean unit's not noisy. Okay, number five is just your general vocal chain. Now, this is going to be an interesting one. We're going to try to develop oh, this thought as much as this? possible. But um, we're going to talk about like typical vocal chains that we use. We're going to try to balance between practical tips that you can take away from. Because if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time and listen to other episodes, then you know that we're very, very hard and heavy on anybody that recommends a specific chain. If it's like use this EQ with this, with this shelf, with this frequency point we have 400 hertz you got to cut it out always those sort of tips do not work yeah. um, number one you have to develop your ear enough and have enough experience to know what a good vocal sounds like yeah this is a very this is a very important concept 
you cannot mix a good vocal if you do not know what a good vocal sounds like. And yep. I will be, it is surprising how many people do not know what a good vocal sounds like, or even just good records sound like. They kind of forget. Yeah. Um, they, because uh, I mean, listening to music casually does help a lot, especially when referencing. And dude, actually, referencing may even go directly into this as well. That's like the secret number part of number five here is like pull into a session or like download a song that you like the vocals of or whatever and try to match that like a lot of referencing and trying to match is actually really really great ear training you're never going to get the same exact sound but the fact the closer you can get like now if you give me like a song and you say match these vocals here i can get really damn close yeah just from like sheer training i mean even when you did uh remember when you got your your um your dangerous dangerous um oh, that you returned yeah the summing uh, mixer yeah and I was like oh this transformer knob all it does is this and like yeah. I was able to ex almost exactly exactly emulate emulate what the transformer box was doing yeah, with like an EQ. it did something cool like extra but it was like a tiny bit extra yeah and and the fact that I was able to emulate it with an EQ. Um, one speaks poorly about what was going on. And yeah, also, the fact that I returned it alone, it was a $2,700 two channel converter and it didn't have in and out. It was only in, I'm sorry, but it's not worth it. Yeah. So on that note, so really, really it was, um, that's the thing. It's like the point of that, me bringing up that story is to say that that's the level of training that your ears can go through. And here's the thing. If yeah. you're younger than I am, you probably have better ears than, than me for sure. Just, just the way it's, it's matter of training. So make sure you take the time to reference, make the time, take the time to learn what good vocals sound like and implement those into your songs. All right. Yeah. Also, as far as vocal chains go, there is no, do this first, do this second. It's, I mean, there's practicality, there's, there's utility, but there's no strict order. You do what sounds good. That's what's the most important thing. And there. this isn't to say art is art. Uh, this is just to say like, practically speaking, after a long time doing this professionally and getting paid to do this repeatedly, um, I don't think I've ever mixed a vocal exactly the same, not even once. Yeah, and then nobody ever should. No. Nobody ever should. If you find yourself using the same exact vocal chain every single time, I guarantee your vocals don't sound good. And if the goal is to sound like, we'll just say the classic example, like Chris Brown or, I don't know, The Weeknd, um, understand that they also don't mix their vocals exactly the same way every song. Every song has a different key, which means its fundamental frequencies are different, which means you perform in a different frequency range. And that means you're going to EQ in a different frequency range as well. Every take is different. Every channel strip they use is different. They don't record in the same studio with the same gear every time. And even if it is the same mic, the same preamp and same compressor, each one is aged differently, which the means instrumental that is different. the instrumental is different. Uh, the room they recorded it in is different. It might be more treated, less treated. The approach is always infinitely different infinitely different so also any any crybabies right now that are listening that are like but dk my vocals sound great every single but time this and is I the use chris the same vocal chain. chain from oh my gosh this is my vocal chain that i use every single time this shut is the, the exact fuck up one from 808 and heartbreak shut the fuck up and go back and listen to my dunning and kruger effect episode because you are a dumbass <laughs> all right but wait but now because they acknowledge that they're dumb they're smart but now that they acknowledge that they're smart they're 
dumb. But for real though, um, no, no, no professional in their right mind uses the same exact chain and settings on every single um, on every single mix. Now that now, being you said, you could say Chris Lord Algae does that with his hardware, but that's more about gain staging and approach as to why he uses one piece tonally for one reason, but. Even then, he has four different master bus compressors that he uses. How Doesn't hard always he uses them. going to be different as exactly. well. Exactly. The reason that he uses one versus the other. Yeah. So it's just, it's just, you gotta, you gotta use. Remember, it's about how to make that vocal sound the best. So, and, yeah. and every single time it's going to be custom tailored. It has to be custom tailored. Yeah. Don't get lazy. Put in the effort to learn how to to, to mix vocals better. Um, some mixers love to do de-essers first. Some mixers love to do de-essers last. Some mixers love to not use de-essers at all and just automate every single S. Some mixers love to do uh, cutting EQ before compression. Some people don't give a, don't use compression. Some people don't use an EQ, don't use a subtractive EQ. Some people use parallel and some people don't. And here's the thing: all of these people probably mix vocals better than you. And then, <laughs> and so here's the thing: is that there's no chain that's going to work. There's no chain that is guaranteed to work, especially settings. Now there are, for example, if you get a chain, you should you should mess with it and figure out why this they the person that created it thought it was a good idea. There's something that may, potentially you can learn from it. But the problem with this thing as well is like you have to, you can't just set and forget. If you do use a chain or if you do have habits, which is okay to have, it's mm -hmm. okay to build habits. Like I yeah. discovered over the time that like using a DSR first is actually really great. If you develop habits, first off, you need to recognize that it's just a personal habit. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's it's always going to be better for everyone or else around you. But if yeah. you build habits, which is fine, it's a great thing, then what you need to do is also continue to recognize, well, one, recognize that it doesn't work every time. And yep. that it's okay, right? Uh, what was I going to say? But um, yeah, like, there, there's you got to make sure that you don't actually get into a stage of stagnation because you just keep doing the same thing. Like for instance, uh, my first plugin in every vocal chain is going to be Pro Q three from Fab Filter. I know that there's a ton of EQ plugins that you can use, and everybody's welcome to use that. Um, but it's something that's stayed tried and true for me. But the settings always change. It always stays flat with three points: one in the lows, one in the highs, one in the mids. And then I can always add more points for that. But it usually starts off with a low shelf, high shelf, and then a pretty narrow like. 3.0 and up in the in the mids reason being is usually the first thing i'm trying to actually do is just kind of balance what's going on a lot of times people record with their voice uh whatever you know their vocal uh way too close to the mic and proximity is a big thing so usually i start off with like some corrective stuff you know so maybe it needs a little more and that's, highs. that's a good ha that's a habit you know that's yeah. not that's not necessarily some people don't do that yeah and some people so it's a good habit habits are great they offload mental mental load they offload mental pressure so you can continue to focus on what's important here yep. but the thing is um the problem with the habits here is that you don't just set and forget like if you pull up a vocal chain that you save that you've been customizing this entire time still shouldn't set and forget it what yeah. you should do is you can pull up a chain out of habit or whatever because you'd like this and you like how it sounds and this sounds very similar to you. you're still going to need to adjust the settings and the frequencies you, you i would if i have a vocal chain which by the way I think I do somewhere like where it's one of those like presets that you can build in Pro Tools where you can mm -hmm. just like it drops in a few plugins in whatever yeah. order that you add. Um, they're all just empty. Like they're not doing any processing and I turn them on one at a time. 
Damn. Okay. But I don't even use that. I don't even use that. But the point yeah. is, but the point is, if you do use a preset chain specifically to save time, something like that, I would turn everything off and make sure that you readjust every single plugin every single time. Yeah. Take the time to do that. It, that's, yeah, leaving the settings as it is is a bad waste of mental offloading. Even if you have a good vocal chain, um, you know, I haven't tried this personal, uh, the chain personally myself. I have a copy of it, just never really tried it. Um, but there was a time where people like Michael Ashby was selling his vocal chain for $1,000. You know, dude got a diamond plaque uh, for doing Bodak Yellow and doing the whole, and I think it was Invasion of Privacy album for Cardi B. He was selling his vocal... Yeah, people were yeah, and people were paying for it, and, and it wasn't just the vocal chain; it was his whole Pro Tools template with every plugin that he used, his settings that he used. But there was one thing that he always mentioned anytime people were asking about it online and this and that, which is like, "That's just my starting point. That's not where I set and forget everything. Even if you had my same settings, we may not use the same settings." Um, and he would preface this by saying, "He's like, sometimes I get people's mix back." And I can tell they didn't change a thing because uh, the compression's off, the EQ's a little bit off, or they're still build up. There's still things that I would not have left there, but because they didn't change anything, when they show it to me after they bought it and done like, oh my God, this worked wonders. It might be a little bit better, but it could still be so much better if you dial it in for your specific song. Amazing. So this is actually really important. There are a lot of mixers out there that do have habits. And yeah. they use similar things almost every single time. I'm even I do. I use similar tools every single time. I have my like my library of tools that are front of mind when it comes to vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always kind of use within those within that set set selection that I like to use that I know is mm-hmm. going to sound good. But anyway, um, don't set and forget, and don't be that crybaby engineer I was talking about. Okay, number uh, six, and this is probably going to be our last one. Um, I'm going to try to combine it with a bonus number seven, which was going to be effects. Mm-hmm. But number six is automation. Yeah. Automation, yeah. I think, is is a very, very good indicator of a million-dollar sounding mix versus yeah. not. Yeah. And yeah. that is, again, another effort-based thing that can be done by a mixer. Yeah. I want to say... When we first met, I remember having the conversation where you're like, I probably should automate more than I do. And I want to say, you know, hindsight versus current mix, your mixes have definitely sounded way better now. And I know you've been automating more than you ever did before. And like, it's one of those things that even like, if you listen to the people around you, listen to your own mixes, you could tell how much automation plays a role. And automation isn't a plugin. It doesn't cost you a single thing. It just, well, actually, no, it does cost, it costs you, you about 1500 clicks. Yeah. It costs you time and effort, but it won't cost your wallet anything to do. And that's kind of the big thing. Everybody's always uh, asking me, they're like, Hey, as a mastering engineer, what do you think the best uh, bus compressor is? I'm like, um that depends did i get a song that's poorly compressed you know because i don't use compression on mastering unless i absolutely have to half the time engineers don't want me to do anything um the artists want me to do something at which point even then i'll do things that aren't necessarily strictly compression and if i do it it's based on taste what is the best who knows but you know what i tend to do every single master automate because not a lot of people don't automate their sections. You know, if uh, usually as a mastering engineer, when I listen to somebody's mix and I'm wondering like, okay, how do I feel in it? 
Um, if I was a producer, it'd be progression of the song. How do the hi-hats play from section to section? How, uh, what is kind of keeping the, the progressive nature of the song? Is it the hi-hats? Is it the bass line? Is it the kick drum doing four to the floor? And then during the bridge, it goes to like one every quarter note or like, or that is four to the floor, but like every half note, whatever. Um, point is like, when you think about like automation, you can think of it as a tool of creating progression and kind of. Um, I guess you can grab people's attention with it. You know, if you're automating panning, you can make a vocal go suddenly to the left. That's going to catch your attention and keep the ear candy going. Um, If you're going into a bridge and you lower it down like one decibel, very progressively, just from the start of the bridge to the end of the bridge, a total of one decibel has been automated downward. And then that chorus hits and it just boosts that one decibel back up. It makes it sound like that chorus hit really hard. You didn't change anything about the mix outside of automating it down a little bit. In the mixing standpoint, like you can automate backing vocals to kind of like swell in, swell out. So you have more of this like watery motion kind of feel with backing vocals and R&B with like reverb swells and everything. You can automate delay throws and everything like it's automation is really the key. Yes, automation is great. It's as as far as like volume, it's secondary to compression as well. If you compress, there's still some sections that are audibly quieter, just perceived to be quieter than other. Some louder than other. The same, the same sentence of the verse, but like for some reason, those first two words, even after compression, still sound quieter. So you can com- yeah. you automate the volume there. Some people rely too heavily on compression to create consistency. So that's the thing. Um, I automate gain staging all the time. So it yeah. compresses more or less into it. Um, I prefer automating gain, gain uh, the the actual clip gain than the, 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 the volume. Do you do trim automation after a plugin? Uh, yeah. Well, volume trim. Yeah. Yes. So yes, I'll add right. volume trim after something that I like. Like I'll add a compressor. It levels it out nicely, but then I might still need to automate a little bit. Instead of my automating the channel, I'll automate the actual trim plugin. Oh, the trim plugin. No, no, no. Yeah. There's a uh, in Pro Tools. There's there's the volume. So like the volume of the track or the bus, and then there's volume trim. Yeah. There's like two layers of volume, right? So um, I thought you were talking about that. No, because I'll do trim uh, the plugin if I can uh, put it before another plugin. If something's going on into another plugin that's causing it to do more. Like uh, let's say you put a compressor and then a saturator after, but even after the compressor is just one part that spikes up a little more than the rest of it. No, I, I don't. Yeah. Re- I rarely ever do that. Yeah. Um, I'll just adjust the clip gain on that point. But that being said, that's a great idea. Um, and let's like, but I mean, as far as like vocal automation, as far as like volume goes, mm-hmm. sometimes I've even automated EQs because the bridge just sounds way darker than the vocals, than yeah. the verse vocals for some reason. And I could tell it was unintentional. Yeah. Sometimes there's like plosives in one section, not in the other section. Sometimes the plosive is just in that one word and I automate like, like a high pass filter for just that one word. It's just yeah. really annoying. Um, but taking the time to do automation is actually crucial and this goes into effects as well with delays and reverbs and whatnot Mm -hmm. a blanket reverb is cool a blanket delay is cool but what really makes a vocal specifically stick out is when you have moments and you can create a mixer can create moments it's not just a producer thing you can create ear candy as a mixer and that's going to be through automation a vocal delay throw here um 
of reverb throw here, maybe some altar boy here in this section here, just like letting it morph and change and kind of changing the vocals throughout the mix that is best for that mix. Sometimes these, um, these mix decisions should be consulted with the producer or the A&R or whoever is in charge, mm-hmm. um, mostly to make sure that you do not overtake on creative decisions here. Yeah. Some mixers and some mixes and mixers, and this is a vibe that you get from the client um, as you qualify the client. Um, but like one of my labels, they like, trust me completely. They're like, if you write a new verse and record your own voice onto it, they probably would <laughs> not that far, but I mean, like it almost feels like they want me to go that far. You Can know, you imagine being a mixing engineer and being like, wow, this course sucks. I got well, something better for but they, you. <laughs> but they have like the flexibility. They give me like open, like they openly give me the flexibility. Just do as much or as little as I want. Um, and then there's another label that like basically wants me to do nothing. Yeah, and so it it totally depends on expectations of the 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 managers, the A and R, the artists, the independent artists, and that's hard to tell with artists. Um, but yeah, sometimes the sure. artist uh, has the most critical case of demoitis, but does not communicate that, um, and that's totally cool. But it's definitely part of what you want to know going in. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's also has a lot to do with like um, how experienced the artist is or not. But we won't get into that. Um, let's let's talk about more about automation here. This automation automation is seriously the key to a great mix, a million dollar mix. You listen to any million dollar mix, great mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be tons of automation. And here's the thing: sometimes it's hard to tell. Like automation, you can't tell from listening all the time. Part of the reason you automate, like for example, the vocals, is so you can't tell that the vocal was compressed or the vocal was automated. Yeah, you know, it just. And this just takes a really like sharp ear. Um, you need to focus, pay attention, takes a lot of experience. And then also just a lot of messing around to see what's possible and figuring out what you like. One of my favorite tools that I like to do, like this is the DK special here, is I love to use a quarter note. Well, depending on the song. But typically a quarter note ping pong delay, but with an altar boy feeding into it. Yeah. So it's like this high pitched or low pitched formant shifted or pitch shifted or both mm-hmm. um, delay that bounces left and right at the end of phrases. That's yep. like a very DK thing to do. And then put that with some of my ad lib uh, reverb pr- uh, preset that I have on, yeah. on Valhalla. And so it's like this reverby, bouncy delay. And that's something that I like to use a lot. And no, even if I use it every single mix, it never gets old because I don't use it the same way. Yeah. Small things change. Like the last song was a high pitch. The last song was low pitch. The, the, this next song is going to be no, no pitch shifting, just formant shifting, just a little bit. And it's going to be eighth notes rather than, or like half notes rather than yeah. quarter notes. And um, You know what? Let's go 30 seconds. You know what? And there it is. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So... And I oftentimes use something called a long boy, which is just like a 10 second, de- a 10 second reverb that I just throw at the end of phrases. Cause I think it sounds crazy, you know, and it's just a lot of experience and experimentation to get to a point where you figure out what you need to automate, but we can tell, we can tell yeah. when you're getting lazy people, One you don't the, need to be an engineer to find out if it feels lazy or not. And this is the last step. You know, it's really funny because like, I guess I'll end my thoughts on this one with just this. You can definitely tell the difference between a professional and a come up engineer's mix when you hear effects with a very static nature. When you hear the same reverb just droning through the song, yeah, everybody's always like, well, I want this part to have even more. It's like, you know, we should dry up the vocal a little bit and just automate those tails. It's like, Mm. no, but I want a lot of reverb. It's like, 
there is perception of a lot of reverb in automation. You oh, know, yeah. you dry, can dry yeah. vocals is a great way to make it feel like there's yeah. no reverb. And it's not to say that dry vocals are the best, but if you listen to the weekend and you listen to how the effects play, usually the effects are somehow behind the lead vocal. And then when he does like an end phrase, the reverb suddenly gets a little bit louder. This is automation, but have you ever listened to a mix, uh, even from a big artist and heard just a droning level of the same effect throughout the entire song, like droning delays, uh, where every single word in the in the lyric has the delay affected to it. It's usually not the case. And usually, like if you listen to people like uh man, what's his name? Uh uh something Scott, uh Travis Scott. Um, Travis Scott has tons of delays all over his vocal, but it's automated down during the verse. And then on the tail ends of phrases, it gets automated upward. Like he's a good example of a ton of delay, but it's very, very well tailored for his songs. What is the story of, uh, Manny Mariquin finally won over yay for, uh, via stronger. I need to look it up. I need to look it up. Um, Manny Mariquin mixed after like, I think the story goes like after dozens of mixers or something like that, after like mm -hmm. a handful of mixers, Manny Mariquin finally gets placed with, um, Kanye. Yeah. Because of how many times he like automated the vocal or the sample specifically. It's like crazy. The number of times that I'm trying to find out the exact number freaking he, the sample that sounds like getting your freak nasty on with this mix like whoa man freaking the sample yeah like he talked about like how oft how much he actually automated the the sample on that one because it was like pops and clicks and volume changes in the sample it's just like a poorly recorded sample but like kanye just wasn't happy no matter where where he went to because the mixer just didn't put in the rather tedious effort of just automating everything you know and, and i have to wonder like how much each mixture was getting paid because uh, i'll say this y'all like if you want to move up you have to stop thinking about your paychecks uh number you know in relation to how much work goes into it like you either agree to do the total amount of work or you don't you know if you're getting paid a 100 bucks less you know and you don't communicate i'm gonna do less work and the artist doesn't see that then they're going to be looking at you as the same person just with the lower price point for that project and wondering why they didn't get the same end result. You honestly shouldn't be accepting less than you honestly believe you're willing to take because this is the honest end result. So like when he goes through a dozen of them, I'm guessing that every single one had a fee. I'm guessing each one of them at the very least got their deposit. Um, at least that's my hope, you know, for everybody, right? You should be charging deposits, but if Manny Mariquin is doing all of this, uh, tiny little bits of automation and everything, and there's no like, you know, premium charge just for automation. Like, think about it. He won him over because of his honest intent and in making sure that he got the end result he wanted. It wasn't because he was the best mixer, apparently. It was because he was the one willing to work the hardest. Well, also, Manny's the best. So. Well, let's just be honest. Manny's good But that's also way. what makes him the best. But think about it. After dozens of engineers, like... The thing that won Yay over was the fact that he automated a ton. That's tedious. That's annoyingly tedious. 
Yeah. By the way, did you see that engineers posted our clip from our podcast episode with Leslie Brathwaite? No, I did not. Yeah, they did. I totally forgot about that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it to you. But anyway, um, this is also part of the reason why Lou and I get hired a lot is because... We work hard. No, no. Sometimes, <laughs> oftentimes, and this is something that, that probably the biggest thing that I've learned from you is that we don't say no to things. So there are times where it's like, it's really tedious and I'm, I want to complain a lot like there's just something that's wrong with the vocals and now I have to go back and fix it and take the time to fix it or whatever. Um, this is how we win over clients is because there's probably a bad experience that was that happened because the engineer previously just wasn't willing to do that. Like they probably know how and they probably just didn't do it mm -hmm. or they tried to work around it by adding extra compression instead of automating or whatever. And they, the artist still didn't sound good. And then they finally reach me who is willing to put in that effort. And then they become my lifelong client. Yeah. Honestly, I kid you not. Um, there's many people that have hit me up because of my previous work, but there's more people that hit me up because of word of mouth. And I'm a big believer in like, you should be doing good business and looking to actually, you know, supersede anybody's previous experiences because you actually want to make sure that if you're not at least consistent, you want to be better. Um, with that said, I hate to admit how much money I've made off of bad engineers. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that I made money off of the artist. It's like the artist was already paying somebody else. And it's impressive to think that I found a new paying client because somebody else was unwilling to support the artist's, I guess, vision, even though the artist was paying for that exact thing. They were looking for somebody to be part of their team to deliver on what the artist's vision is. And all these little things that we talked about in this episode really are, you know, some of the cheapest and tedious things that you can do to really make vocals shine. And nine times out of 10, I get revisions over vocals. And that's the thing. I think at the end of the day, I think the biggest takeaway from all of this, all six points, is that it's the last five to 10% of effort that mm -hmm. makes a million dollar record sound oh, like yeah. a million dollar record. It's not what everybody thinks. It's not the microphone. It's not the preamp. Nope. It's not even the type of compression you use. Um, you can still get use bad compression with a good compressor. Yep. You can still get bad recording vocals with a good microphone. It's more about the last five to 10%, which is fortunately speaking, which is an actual just effort thing. Yep. It's not it's not a financial gate kept thing. It's nope. people people that just don't have the experience, people that need to take more time, mix more vocals or whatever. Um, if you are mixing by yourself and you're only mixing your own thing, I'd recommend taking the time to practice, download some practice stems. There's a bunch of free ones out there. Yep. Uh, start working. I mean, dude, mixing your own vocals is the hardest thing ever. Like it's yeah. the hard my hardest client is myself. So Take some time, practice by working on somebody else's music, I think is a great way to look at it as well. Yeah. All right. So on that note, um, thank you so much for listening to the Mixing Music Podcast. If you're interested on hearing more technical tips like this, go to Mixing Music Podcast forward slash uh, exclusive to subscribe to our exclusive episodes. They come out every Wednesday and Thursday. Um, those are really, really, really great episodes. And you get the whole backlog of all the exclusive episodes up until that point. Um, Brayden and I, we kind of break down technical, technical tips given by other engineers, other producers, and then we say yay or nay, and we explain exactly how to do it, how you can practice doing those techniques, um, as well as what's the big takeaway are we give, we can assign homework as well. So, um, it's really, really great. That's $4 a month, 40 or $40 a year. Mixing music podcast forward slash exclusive. 
So on that note, we are also proud to announce a partnership with Sweetwater that we're going to organize oh, yeah. a little bit more and then um, throw at y'all later so we can do our very best to give you the best and most reliable customer service and help hook you up with what is important, whether that's software or hardware. So thank you so much for listening and subscribing and for leaving five-star reviews on whichever platform you're listening on. Thank you so much. Happy mixing, my friends, and stay saucy. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.